Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here, and hi, everyone at home. Uh, it's great to be uh, coming together to hear God's word and worshiping him. Uh, it's a change of season, so I hope that is treating you all okay. I'm actually not dreading the snowfall. It helps me to see moose in the morning, uh, some contrast, so that can be a good thing. Uh, before we get into this morning's uh, sermon from Isaiah, I just want to draw your attention to one thing you should know about. Our annual Christian for- Thought Forum is coming up pretty soon here, uh, November 6th and November 7th. Uh, two ways to watch that. You can watch online if you like. Uh, you can host a little viewing party if you like. Or you can come here in person, and uh, we're going to have a what we're calling a semi-live event. Uh, we've actually had both of our speakers record exclusive content for Bethel Church Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, but beyond that, we're going to have uh, what I've heard is called an assortment of desserts the first night. Uh, of course, fellowship, book giveaways, and you get to ask your questions live of our speakers who will be uh, joining us through a Zoom call so we can ask our questions to them. So please sign up, especially if you're planning on coming in person so we have uh, a right head count for, for the food there. So, uh, so do that. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into God's word this morning. Lord uh, Jesus, uh, we just praise you that you uh, are all-knowing, you're all-powerful. Uh, you know every person who's either tuning in or here uh, in person. You know what's going on in our lives. Uh, you know the, the joys, you know the, the challenges, um, and, and you love us still. I uh, pray, Lord, uh, as we have so much going on in our world with elections and uh, the darker season, the colder season coming, coming that you just lift our burdens and uh, fill up our, our tanks with you. Uh, we need your word. We need uh, to know your truth so that we can live well uh, for you. So give us hearts to hear, uh, ears to hear, uh, hearts to obey uh, what we see in your word today. Uh, help me to speak clearly. I pray this for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, this morning I want to start out with uh, a bit of a hard question for you. Uh, so sorry, no fun slides today of memes, cat memes or otherwise. But my hard question for you all is, have you ever gotten mad at God? And um, I know we're in church on a Sunday morning or tuning in and we feel like, well, it's not the kind of thing I really want to talk about in this kind of setting. But if you have had a time or two when you've felt mad at God, um, you're not alone. Uh, Others have felt that way. It's a fairly common feeling from time to time, at least for some people. Uh, But it's also uh, been shared by those who've contributed to parts of scripture. And I think if we've gotten mad at God, you always say, well, well, why? Why do we tend to get mad at God? Uh, a lot of us, I think it's specific circumstances, either in our own lives uh, or maybe in the life of someone that we love or care about, where we say, you know, this is going on and it just doesn't seem like that's fair. Why are you allowing this, God? Why aren't you doing this to fix this? And we question God's justice. We question God's way of doing things. And I remember, actually, I had one of these times years, years ago, um, and it stuck with me. And I've actually shared this story from the pulpit before. So if you've been here a few years, you might have heard this story if you have a really good memory. But it's just one of those life lessons that really kind of came home to me and stuck with me. And, and what it was is um, I was a young Christian, a, a new Christian. I was serving uh, in missions in Japan. And I was on a three-year term uh, away from my friends and my family And about midway through, about a year and a half into my time in Japan, I had the opportunity to fly back to the States 
to visit my friends and family for Christmas. Uh, money was pretty tight back then, but I saved up my pennies. Uh, I got permission from the church I was working with in Japan to, to have the time off, and it looked like everything was a go. Uh, but this was, you guys can't even remember so far back in history. It was the days of the early internet where you should, couldn't just click on a, on a button and book a, an airline ticket. You had to actually use travel agencies back then. And uh, my money, basically, for my airline ticket was locked up with a Japanese travel agency. So I was dealing with the frustration of dealing in a second language. And basically it said, well, we have your money, but we can't guarantee you a ticket home. You're just going to have to wait. Couldn't get my money back. Couldn't find other plans. And as the sands of time were ticking down, I was getting more and more frustrated. Uh, and I turned my anger towards God. And I actually remember where I was standing. It was outside at the bottom of a hill. And I was having this conversational prayer argument with God and basically saying, God, this is not fair. I saved up my pennies to go home. Uh, and more than that, God, I'm a missionary in Japan. You know trouble's coming now, right? I deserve a ticket home. And uh, that thought of I deserve this, God, was pretty quickly followed by an understanding of what I really deserved because I realized in my anger towards God, I was mad at him for being God, for having the power over my life and for him not doing something. I wanted to be God in place of him. And that was just like this moment of just seeing my naked sin. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even know that was in my heart. And God said, well, I knew about that. And I love you still. And so I repented of that. Uh, but it was just this, this like eyes wide open moment uh, where I was shocked by my own sin. And I realized what I really deserved was not an airplane ticket back to the States. I deserved to be snuffed out by God Almighty for wanting to be God instead of him. But what came out of that, it was a hard lesson. It was good for my soul as I started to understand God's grace a little bit more. God knew about that sin in my heart all along and he still loved me and he forgave me of that. But the bottom line of why I'm sharing this story this morning is because my idea of what I deserved was all out of whack. My idea of what was just and fair was all mixed up. And when God pulled back the veil, um, and gave me a clear God's eye view of what was going on in my own heart. It was real painful, but it ended up uh, being beautiful and cleansing for me as a result. It was kind of like a surgery. Uh, no one wants to go through a surgery, but we want the results of the surgery. Sometimes the knife has to cut in order to get at the cancer. Or it's like that rebuke from a friend that you don't want to hear, uh, but you know, uh, yeah, it's true, and if I take them at their word, my life is going to be changed for the better. Something similar like that, like the surgeon's knife, is going on in our passage in Isaiah today. God's going to speak a hard word uh, to his people, to us, through the prophet Isaiah. And this is his hard word. I'll just give it to you up front. It says, God is just to punish our sins. In other words, our God's holy, and it's a good thing for God to judge sin, even if it's our own and uh, admittedly, that's a hard word to hear. We don't really want to think about it, but it's going to pave the way for healing to follow. So we're going to listen to God's hard word to his people and to us. We're going to get a reality check about God's justice, his way of doing things. And we're going to look at two questions in particular that we might be mixed up about, just like the Israelites were. And I'll put them both up on the screen at the same time here. First question is, is well, what does God deserve? 
The second one is, what do we deserve? And the answer to these questions might be a little bit shocking to us, but I do want to give a little bit of hope up front in the message. Just like there was a silver lining in that hard lesson I learned in Japan, there is a silver lining to this message as well. The painful cut uh, of the surgeon's knife is going to make the way for a deep healing to follow. So hang with me and we will get to the good part, okay? But we've got to deal with the uglies head on first before we can see how we can benefit from this realization that God is just to punish our sins. Uh, We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles there, uh, either electronically or in paper, Isaiah chapter 5. We're not going to put the words on the screen today because it's a big chapter here. And uh, where we are at in Isaiah's um, message is we are at the end of the introduction, if you can believe that. It's a five-chapter introduction. And this has been God's lawsuit against his people. He says, Israel, my people, I got a beef with you guys. You turned your back on me. And now I'm laying before you a choice. Do you want to repent of that and trust and obey me? Or do you want to keep on this road of rebellion and head towards destruction? Unfortunately, by the time we get to chapter five, Israel's made her choice. She wants to continue to rebel and she's going to meet with destruction. So chapter five is a summary of this bad choice and the natural consequences that are going to follow from them choosing to go their own way instead of God's way. So our two questions, what does God deserve? What do we deserve? Uh, Let's start reading Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Starts out with a song, of all things, a song. Verse 1, Isaiah's talking here. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard in a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Okay, let's just stop right there. Uh, These seven verses here uh, at the beginning of the chapter, they are the foundation for the rest of what follows there in the rest of the chapter. So we're going to spend a lot of time on just these first seven verses and then go more quickly through the rest. And you notice here that we start with a song. Uh, This is an odd little insertion here. If you've been reading through Isaiah, you might feel like uh, this is a little hard to follow at times. It feels like a patchwork quilt where you get a little bit of justice, you get a little bit of mercy, you're looking at the future, You're looking at a bad situation now, and now here's Isaiah singing a song. What's going on here? Uh, Well, again, this is placed at the very end of God's lawsuit against his people. He's already made his point to them, but it's kind of like he's saying, you know, I don't know if you're really hearing what I have to say, so let me put it to you this way. And so this song is a form, it's kind of a backdoor entry into his people's hearts. They're not really hearing his words just straight on, 
So you have to try the, the backdoor approach. It's kind of like if you remember uh, the story in the Old Testament about uh, the prophet Nathan confronting King David about his sin with Bathsheba. He tells a little story. He says, hey, there was a guy who had a lamb, um, and then there was a rich guy who had lots of lambs, and the rich guy took the other lamb. And King David says, that man deserves to, get to die. And then Nathan turns it on and says, you are that man, King David, right? So it's this backdoor entry to get into the hearts of the people. It's kind of like a parable. And Isaiah sets the trap to catch people in their consciences, and then he springs it on them. And this is the reality check that, that God wants to send to wake up his people. And the point of it is this. What does God deserve? Our first question. God deserves good fruit from our lives. Uh, look at how sweet the song starts out. It says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. So uh, this is just this list of blessings, right, that God has bestowed on this vineyard here. He says, I put it on a fertile hill. Uh, I'm not a vine, uh, but if I was a vine, I'd want to be planted on a fertile hill, right? It's good soil. Uh, I'm assuming because there's elevation there, it'd get the, all the sunlight it needs. Uh, it's lifted up there. Uh, it's a really good location. Uh, look at the hard work that the vine dresser puts in here. He clears the land of stones. I imagine in uh, the first century, that would be, or actually this is the fifth century BC, that would be a lot of hard work because this is manual labor. Uh, you're not going to be able to get a big fancy machine to pull out your stones. You're going to do it by hand or maybe use some animals. And then after all that hard work, he doesn't just pick any old vine to plant. He chooses choice vines, the very best crop to plant in this good location. And then he takes those stones, and besides building the wall there, he also builds a watchtower to keep watch over it, and a wine vat so that when the fruit is produced, it can make something else useful, wine. And the bottom line, as this is this continual list of how generous God is, God gives his vineyard his very best. And uh, for us, I think we can say that too. God gives us his very best. We have life. We have been created in the very image of God. Uh, he's given us family, friends, work, provision, and beyond that, so many more good things. And if, especially if you've already put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, you have salvation. This is like a generous parent who gives their children everything. They spare no expense to see that their children thrive in the world. And in light of that generosity, God is saying, I deserve good fruit to come out of that. But notice at the end of verse 2, it says, He, God, looked for the land to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, right? I've never had a wild grape. I've had a sour grape, right? Uh, but from what I understand about wild grapes is they're not really edible by humans. They call them wolf grapes in some places. They're really bitter, really sour, set your teeth on edge. Closest I've probably come is uh, a wild watermelon at Costco where I put down my eight bucks Bring it home all ready to have a good watermelon and cut into it and it's all rotten inside, right? Yeah, you've been there, right? Um, but think of this. As far as this song goes, it starts out with all this generosity and goodness of God. It's almost like if you could hear the song, it's like there's this gentle flute and a cello playing as this, this worker's clearing the land and building all these things. And then suddenly, the needle gets scratched off the record and it comes to an abrupt end. He looked for good fruit and it gave him bad fruit. And then after he says the song, verse 7, Isaiah spills the beans about the song. 
He's actually been telling the Israelites, his people, about their own sinful situation, their own bad fruit. Verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is you, I added that, house of Israel, and you, men of Judah, are his pleasant planting. It's about you. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Okay, we're going to spend a, a minute or two talking about righteousness and justice because these are key terms in Isaiah and actually in, in a lot of the, the prophets as well. Uh, justice, righteousness, they're not totally synonyms, uh, but they're brought up a whole lot by God. Uh, righteousness uh, is this kind of vertical aspect of us and God. It's kind of our moral character, um, our integrity, as it were. Uh, are we living before God in a right way? Are we living in line with his standard, the standard of his character? That's, uh, that's righteousness. Justice is that applied horizontally to our neighbor. How are we treating our neighbor? So really, justice, I'm sorry, righteousness and justice is love of God and love of our neighbor. And these things are going to be brought up again and again and again. Now, what's going on here actually in Hebrew is a little bit of wordplay. And uh, we're going to focus in on this for a second because it's important for our point here. Uh, basically, there's some wordplay going on between justice and bloodshed and righteousness and outcry. They're words that sound similar but are very different in meaning. Uh, the word for justice is mishpat. Just sounds great, right? But it says, I looked for mishpat, but you gave me mishpach. Okay, get a at the end, right? I looked for justice, but you gave me uh, bloodshed. I looked for tzadakah, righteousness, but you gave me tzaka, outcry. Okay, you might not be able to hear the difference there, but the point is, is they're similar sounding words. He's saying, I was looking for this, and you gave me the opposite. Same thing with here. I was looking for this vertical rightness between you and me, and your treatment of your fellow man, and you gave me not what I was looking for and not what I deserved. And that is injustice. And it's common sense that God should expect good fruit after all of this investment in this land, in this vineyard. Verse 3 he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And he's really asking a rhetorical question, what more was there to do? He knows everything has been done. Uh, he's been very generous here. The conclusion that we come to is it's the vineyard's fault. It's the vine. Uh, it wasn't producing what it ought to have been. And likewise for us, God deserves good fruit from our lives. He created each one of us in his own image. He allows us daily to live. And uh, those are big things. So we could just let those two things sink in here. But beyond that, he's given us so many blessings, especially if we've put our trust in him. And yet sometimes uh, our lives will yield wild grapes, bad fruit, Costco melons as well. I know, the Costco melons hits home a little too close, doesn't it? Well, what is there left to do? God's generous, but he's also holy. He's the embodiment of this righteousness and justice that he is asking for in us. And because of that, he doesn't let sin go unpunished. What does God deserve? He deserves good fruit from our lives. But what about us? What if we don't produce that good fruit? What do we deserve? 
And this is going to sting a little bit, but hold on to the end. When we don't produce the good fruit that God is looking for, we know that our sinful actions deserve punishment. Uh, And again, I don't want to, I don't think I can say too much, but this is a, a painful thing. But wounds from a friend can be trusted. And Isaiah, he isn't uh, telling his people this in self-righteousness. He's got his own issues too, which we'll soon see. Uh, But he's not telling this to kick people when they're down, but he's telling this to his people to wake them up so that they are ready to receive God's solution to their very real problem. Now, we already read about the punishment in verse 5. He says, and now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it should be devoured. I'll break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I'll also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And I noticed this week as I was reading through this uh, that this isn't really a list of things that God is doing to directly harm the vine. But rather what he's doing, it's, it's a long series of protections and provisions that he's pulling away. He says, well, the wild grapes want to live on their own apart from me. I'm going to let them live on their own apart from my protection and my provision. I'm going to remove the hedge and the wall, break down that protective wall. I'm not going to prune it or hoe it, but just let it go natural and let the thorns and the briars grow up, let the animals trample all over it. And the only kind of direct thing he's commanding is he commands the clouds not to rain. But again, this is just a withdrawing of his provision. Uh, He's letting the wild grapes live on their own. He's saying, in in essence, you want to live like wild grapes? I'll let you live like wild grapes without me. He's letting his people face the natural consequences of their own sin. Now, uh, that's the foundation, those first few few verses, the, the song of the vineyard and its explanation. The rest of the chapter mostly is this close up of the rotten fruit. All right, what fun, right? Of, his, of the sins, uh, the bad fruit that the people have been producing. Uh, earlier, God says, in real general terms, I'm looking for this righteousness, this justice. And he talks in real general terms, you've given me bloodshed, you've given me outcry. But now he's going to zoom in on their specific sins. He's going to give us six snapshots of what their sins look like concretely. And the real world, he's going to just kind of telescope this out and the reason why he's doing this is he's saying, look at how bad this fruit is. It's like you go into the Costco, like you have to justify how bad your melon is. And look at the rot right here and that kind of thing. And Isaiah does this through a series of six woe speeches, right? Like as in woe is me. And if you get, skim your Bibles there, uh, whether electronically or in paper, you can see that the word woe pops out a whole lot in the next few verses. It's in verse 8, 11, 18, 20, 21, 22. It's there a whole lot. Um, and we don't say woe a whole lot, unless you're a cowboy or cowgirl, right? But that's a different kind of woe. This is not cowboy talk. This is funeral talk. This is the language of death. In this case, the word woe is used to draw attention to the fact that those who are committing these sins and participating in them are going to their destruction, uh, if you like Hebrew, it's the word oi, like oi ve, right? Oi, whoa. Uh, and we're not going to go through each of these uh, close-ups in detail. We will look at a few of them. But again, the point of them is to show in shocking detail how bad the people's sin is. So that can be seen that God is just to judge sin. Let's look at the first woe speech here in verse 8. Close-up of the bad melon. 
Verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses will, shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of sealed seed shall yield but an ephah. Okay, the singular uh, point of this first woe speech is greed is bad. Apparently, people were buying up huge tracts of land, uh, gobbling up their neighbors' uh, properties, and building their own Downton Abbeys, as it were. These huge, vast estates, but with no concern uh, for the needs of their neighbors. And ironically, it says these vast, beautiful estates are going to end up empty and unfruitful. Um, second woe speech. Look, look at this one in verse 11 here. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Let's pause right there. Uh, singular point of this woe is just the devotion uh, to the pursuit of pleasure. I mean, notice there, it goes from early in the morning until late at night. Now, you all probably have something that you are devoted to, a hobby, something you love, that you will find time to fit into your schedule. It doesn't matter how busy your week is. You know that thing that you love, whether that's a sports show or um, crafting, gaming, hunting, TV series, you will find time, and I will find time, uh, to fit it into our schedules. It's talking about this devotion. And the devotion here uh, is to the pursuit of pleasure. Uh, look at the listing of instruments. Lyre, harp, tambourine, flute, wine. There's no expense spared. There's a huge time commitment. There's a passion. There's a huge money commitment. But the people, for all their devotion to their pleasure, do not regard the deeds of the Lord. People bend over backwards to have fun, but have zero effort to live for God. Okay, that's the second woe. Uh, third woe, for time, this is the last one I'll look at in detail, then we'll speed through the rest of them. The third one here is the one that caught my attention this week. Let's read it uh, here in verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work so that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Okay, kind of a cryptic one here. This one caught my attention because I didn't know what to make of it at first here. But there's two parts of it, really. There's this cart metaphor, and then there's the words of the person pulling the cart. Uh, so cart image is pretty basic. You're hauling a load, right? If you've got a pickup truck, you know about hauling loads. You've probably got a trailer. You haul your loads. You haul your friend's loads. You haul loads. That's what we do, right? Back in that day, uh, it would have been with uh, a beast of burden like an ox or a donkey, and some kind of cart where you'd load up your cart and you'd have your animal pull it. But in this case, it's not the donkey or the ox that's pulling it. It's the person pulling it with ropes. And what they're pulling is not treasures, not food, not something that's of value. It's sin and iniquity, which is just real generic, but saying it's worthless stuff. But can you get that image in your head of just someone pulling around this heavy cart of their own stuff? And uh, it's hauled by cords of falsehood. They're deceived as to what they're doing it. It's not like they're taking it to the transfer site to get rid of it. It's something that they're holding on to. 
just kind of living their life all and stuff around town here. And I, I think this is very gripping because it's such a picture-y, picture of the slavery of sin. Uh, you know, we think we sin, we think we're going to get something good out of sin, right? It always has a promise. You're going to get X if you follow the sin. But sin, and we know this, it's a cruel mistress. It doesn't uh, deliver on what it promises. There is a slavery here, but it is a self-made, self-inflicted slavery of someone pulling around their own junk. And the second part of this uh, woe here has to deal with the words, right? It's first the cart metaphor, but then that person says something about God, right? It's almost like they were asked about, hey, uh, Joe, why are you hauling that load of manure around town all day and not getting rid of it? And it's kind of like a snappy comeback here. And he says, well, if you think that's such a big deal, if God thinks it's such a big deal for me to be hauling this around, why doesn't he show up and do something? When's the last time I, God did anything for me? I'd sure like to see him do something. Oh, God, are you there? No, no. Well, I guess I'm just going to keep on carrying my sin. That's kind of the attitude of it here. It's like, where is God? He's not showing up. He's not on my timetable. So I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. They're blaming God and his delayed action for a justification for their own sin. Say, I'm just going to haul this manure around. What a picture of sin. Last three woes. Uh, we're going to just breeze right through. Uh, we'll just read them. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good, good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. 22, woe to those who are heroes of drinking wine and valiant men who are mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights. And uh, I won't put a lot of commentary on these, but these three woes, it's a reversal of God's standards. It's a supplanting of God's word, his ways, and saying, I know better. My way of thinking is better. And it's a perversion of justice for selfish gain. One commentator says, you really, you got to take all six of these woe speeches together because it's a cumulative effect. It's talking about a, a society that has lost its center. It's lost its reference, its focus, its purpose, and its chance for well-being. In short, this is an upside-down world that is giving God exactly the opposite of what he's really looking for. And because of that, we're supposed to see that our sins deserve punishment. And I think it's real tempting for us to distance ourselves from Isaiah. It's not a book that we probably run to a whole lot. And boy, it's talking about Israelites from 2,500 years ago. And uh, that's nice to know about their sins, but what does that have to do with me? Um, it's not like I have Downton Abbey as my home. It's not like I'm getting up early and staying up late to party all the time. That's their sin. It's not mine. But it's interesting uh, that in context, as we read further in Isaiah, that even Isaiah is not exempt uh, from realizing that he is sinful because this list of six woe speeches is followed by a seventh woe in the next chapter, which Eric will talk about next week, where Isaiah sees the God of heaven lifted up on the throne. He says, Oily, woe is me. Uh, I'm a sinner too. Uh, Isaiah is not exempt, and we are not exempt either. There's something universal about this examination of sin here. When we compare ourselves with the holiness of God, his righteousness, his justice, we all come up short. And we know this from other passages in Scripture, right? Like in Romans, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. 
Not one of us has loved God or our neighbor the way that we ought to have been. And we are worthy of judgment there. Uh, So we need to realize that this applies to us too. Left to our own devices, our own way, we would be constantly producing wild grapes, Costco rotten melons, right? And were it not for God's mercy, which thankfully is coming, hold on, wait for it, we would face that righteous punishment for our deeds. And God lets these natural consequences reach their conclusion as he sends judgment on his people in verse 25. We'll just read it quickly here. It says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and the corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. God strikes his own people. And that sounds bad enough, but there is more. Verse 25 says, For all this, his anger has still not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Now, that's a real scary phrase, and it pops up quite a bit, actually, in uh, later chapters of Isaiah, that exact same phrase. It's like saying, you know, that first smack wasn't enough. There needs to be more uh, for there to be justice to be dealt. And so the second part of the punishment comes in verse 26. God calls for these foreign nations, cruel and ruthless, to come and take his people away into exile. Verse 26, he, God, will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily, they come. And uh, the final few verses of chapter five deal with the fierceness and cruelty of these foreign invaders. They talk about really how escape's not possible for God's people. Uh, We're not gonna read that for time. Uh, But the point here, uh, it's to draw attention to God's unmet expectations for justice and righteousness. And the bottom line is that God is totally just to punish sins, even our own sins. And that's really the main point of chapter five. Pretty heavy hitting truth for today. So uh, if you're feeling absolutely gutted like I am, that's good news because that's exactly where we're supposed to be uh, at the end of Isaiah 5. But I promised you guys a silver lining to this, and I think there is one here, so I want to talk about that briefly so we can look at some points of application for us. Why, like my own revelation of my sin in Japan, why is understanding our own sinfulness before a holy God a good thing? How can that understanding benefit us in some way? Here are a few ways. Uh, First of all, when we understand that God is righteous, that he is just and we are not, it helps us to humble ourselves before God and humility before God is a good thing. Our hearts get reoriented to remember he is king of the universe and we are not. And that helps us to have uh, less anger, I think, towards God's way of doing things, towards his, his timing of things, and more patience towards him and doing things his way. Second, uh, I think our understanding of our own shaky understanding before God Almighty should make our hearts prepared for God's solution to our sin. And I think that's perhaps the most important application, both for the Israelites, because that's where the rest of Isaiah goes, and for us. I mean, this passage calls us out, confronts us with our own rotten melons before God. But God has a solution to our sin problem. 
Uh, Isaiah is going to keep on writing. Fortunately, the, the book of Isaiah does not stop at the end of chapter five. Boy, wouldn't that be a bummer, right? Continues on. <clears throat> God's solution is he's going to raise up his servant, his Messiah, descendant of David, who we know is Jesus Christ. And he is going to uh, pay the price for our sins. Uh, this is the gospel according to Isaiah. I'll just read it real quick here. You don't have to flip there. It's Isaiah 53, 6. This is where Isaiah is going. He looks at our human situation and says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've produced wild grapes. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, on the Messiah, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So he's saying the bad news is we've all produced bad grapes, but the good news is that God has laid on his Messiah, Jesus, the punishment for our sins. Jesus died as our substitute and he rose from the dead. And we become Christians by acknowledging that, by acknowledging that we've blown it and saying, God, I know it. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to accept your payment for my sins and walk with you. If you do that, you have become a Christian. You become a follower of Christ. If you have not put your trust in Jesus as your substitute, if you've not turned away from those sins, you're not a Christian. Going to church doesn't make someone a Christian. Uh, praying a lot doesn't make someone a Christian. Doing good deeds doesn't make us a Christian. What it is, is putting our trust in God's solution for us. He died as a substitute for us. And if you haven't done that, I'll give you a chance on it when we pray. But for those of us who have already prayed that, there are two other benefits to understanding our sinfulness before a holy God. First of these is that we have a deep gratitude. Uh, gratitude is really kind of like the opposite of entitlement, right? If you've encountered someone who's felt very entitled to a lot of things, uh, it's not easy to be around that. But when someone has a deep gratitude, uh, boy, they're a lot easier to be around. And I think that we as Christians can even be forgetful. Sometimes we convince ourselves, uh, like myself at times, and certainly back when I was in Japan, that we are all that and a slice of cherry pie, that God is blessed to have us on his team. Um, but when we remember our sinfulness and how we've blown it, even as Christians, even after we've become Christians, we have that deep gratitude. It's like, wow, every day is grace. Every day we get God's grace. That helps us to uh, soften our edges and live with other people. Last benefit of knowing our sinfulness in contrast to God's perfect righteousness and justice is that when we know that, we're more prone to ask him for help. And that's a good thing. We don't have to live this life of righteousness before God, of integrity, and this life of justice to our fellow man, loving God and loving our neighbor in our own strength. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And when we remember our sinfulness, we know, I need help. <laughs> Phone a friend, right? Uh, ask God for help. And the Holy Spirit helps to shape us. Uh, we're imperfect, but he's shaping us to be more like Christ. God deserves good fruit from our lives, but when we produce those wild grapes, we know that we in our actions deserve punishment. But that hard realization can be a good thing if we let that truth sink in and work on our hearts. Uh, let's pray here. Lord, uh, you are generous and you are holy. And it is right that you would ask of um, righteousness and justice in our lives. We don't live up. I pray first off for anyone who's not yet put their trust in you, Lord, that you'd help them. If you, if you want to follow God, if you want to become a Christian, pray something like this. I'll just leave the words here and you, put it, you say it to God in your heart. Say, God, 
I know my life has produced wild grapes, bad fruit, Costco melons, and uh, I'm not happy about that. And I want to turn from that and turn to your solution. I believe that you have laid on Jesus the suffering, the penalty for my sin. I believe that he died and that he rose again. And I want your help. I need your help to live for you. Uh, If you prayed that and believe that in your heart, you are a follower of Christ. Your life has changed. And uh, Lord, I pray for those of us who have already done that. Um, Thank you so much for what you've done for us. Make us aware of your generosity. Remind us of that. Remind us in the right sense of our own sinfulness, not that we'd be buried by that, but that we would be uh, healed by the surgeon's knife. Uh, Work on our hearts. Help us to live rightly before you and to love our our neighbors um, as ourselves by your help, by your grace. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.